Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson. Tonight is March 15th, Thursday, 2012, and our guest tonight will be Michael Benipke, uh, Ph.D. And before we start the show, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge laylet support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. Our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, you can go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our guest tonight is Michael Benibke. Um He's got quite a list of uh, references here. Uh, he's a psychologist at the Center for Optimal Living. He's a project director for services for the underserved. He's committee member for the New York State Psychological Association, the Addictions Division. And we're going to bring him on right now. Michael, how are you doing this evening? Excellent. Thank you so much for having me on. Well, thank you for being a guest. I'm going to start off by asking you a little bit about the doctoral dissertation that you wrote, and I think it was about the physiological effects of homophobia, bullying, and so forth. And can you tell me about that dissertation? Sure. It was a uh, dissertation project that was conducted at Concordia University and McGill University in Montreal, Canada. And essentially... Uh, what we were looking to uh, explore were the the biological, psychological, and uh, social factors that are related to mental health uh, and resilience in underserved uh, minority populations, specifically uh, young, lesbian, gay, and bisexual and questioning uh, young adults in uh, the Montreal area. And what did you find out? Uh, what were the results? Uh, what were the effects of bullying? Did it affect stress hormones and things? Exactly. Uh, one of the things that we were interested in looking at were to determine whether uh, discrimination and societal, the effects of chronic low-grade stress related to minority status, uh, in this case uh, uh, a non-heterosexual minority, had uh, was in any way related to physiological changes in stress reactivity. Uh, one of the things we know in uh, psychology and psychiatry is that uh, the stress system in the body uh, and the physiological stress system has multiple impacts, both at a physical level and a uh, psychological level. And what we were able to show was that um, young LGBTQ uh, adults who uh, experienced higher levels of discrimination and homophobia and bullying also had higher levels of cortisol circulating uh, in their bodies. And cortisol is, is uh, both a, an adaptive hormone, but at um, uh, increased levels, uh, it, it tends to uh, be associated to a much higher risk for mental health problems and a much higher risk for physical health problems. Uh, did you find any relationship between uh, bullying and substance abuse in those that were bullied? Yes, one of the things that we uh, did measure was uh, substance use and other risk behaviors. And uh, one of the things that we, we found was that, and I'm not the only one who found that because it's, it is an established link, that uh, bullying and discrimination 
uh, is linked to risk behaviors such as substance use and sexual risk-taking. Uh, these kinds of behaviors put people at risk not only for the ill effects or the negative effects of substance use, but also for uh, the health consequences of uh, sexual risk behaviors that uh, lead to acquisition of sexually transmitted diseases and uh, HIV AIDS. Okay. Is there anything that offers a protective factor? Yes. One of the uh, factors that we looked at was the quality of family and parental relationships and the level of social support that these youths uh, experienced in their peer groups. And those were shown to be protective factors against the development of mental health problems, even when cortisol levels were high. So there was a buffering effect of social support uh, in, in the forms of family support or peer support. And I would tend to argue, although it wasn't measured in this study, that uh, support from mental health clinicians and uh, psychotherapeutic support would uh, also be associated to uh, resiliency in this population and other populations. Is there anything that people can do to reduce uh, discrimination against uh, bullying of the various minority populations? I mean, there are quite a few that are discriminated against these days. Absolutely. This is not a uh, solely uh, an LGBTQ issue. Um, bullying against minority groups has uh, always been an issue uh, and continues to be an issue, regardless of which minority uh, we're speaking of, whether it be a cultural minority, an ethnic minority, a sexual minority. Um, it's very difficult for me to answer that question when you ask, you know, what can be done to to uh, reduce bullying. That's that's more of a, a national and public uh, health education uh, issue. Um, but one can certainly do what one can to reduce the impacts of bullying on a person uh, when that occurs. And so uh, some of the recommendations that were made through this research project were that uh, schools could engage in more uh, health uh, education campaigns and anti-bullying uh, campaigns based on the findings that bullying is essentially harmful to physical and mental health. That's no, it, it, it's not a, uh, it, it may seem like common sense, but uh, when the rates of suicide uh, or attempted suicide skyrocket, as they have in the last uh, few years, as we've noticed in these populations, uh, one needs to wonder uh, how are these children being protected and what kind of messages are they getting in, in their schools and their communities. Um, once one is exposed to, to bullying, uh, there are, uh, and discrimination, there are many resources that could be used to mitigate the impact of that, including psychotherapy and both at an individual level, group, and family level. Well, I think it's important for all of us to, uh, you know, Learn to be accepting of other people and other and differences, and you know whether it's sexual orientation, whether it's you know economic prosperity, rich versus poor, or whether it's drug mm -hmm. users versus non-drug users, uh, discriminating against people and being prejudiced against them, 
say because they're poor, because they're drug users, because they have different sexual orientation. It's detrimental to everyone. It's detrimental to the people that discriminate as well as the ones discriminated against and society as a whole. Absolutely. You're you're right on point there. Uh, Discrimination especially towards uh, substance abusers by virtue of them being substance abusers becomes a vicious cycle because discrimination may lead to feelings of low self-worth. And we know that feelings of low self-worth and low self-esteem are related to continued substance use. So when we treat people who uh, experience substance abuse uh, problems as though they were somehow other than us, um, that just fuels the substance use problem even further. Yeah, I think it helps a lot when uh, we can, you know, have contact with uh, other people. Um, for myself personally, you know, I spent some time volunteering in needle exchange in Minneapolis. Uh, mm-hmm. I never was involved with uh, using illegal drugs. Uh, my drugs of choice were you know, alcohol and nicotine, mm-hmm. legal ones, and you know, it, very very strong drugs themselves. Mm. Oh, absolutely. Very dangerous drugs. But, mm-hmm. you know, before my involvement in needle exchange to learn about harm reduction, you know, I had a lot of preconceived attitudes. And I can say that, you know, being in contact with people using the exchange, uh, it totally changed my attitude about drug users, about all kinds of things. So it was very positive. So I think if we can, if we have some positive social interaction with people that, you know, we don't know so much about it can really help to change our perspectives yes uh, our perspectives do need to change because substance use and misuse does not operate in a vacuum and it's not all that different from other other risk behaviors or excessive behaviors such as overeating or overspending or gambling or uh, difficulties managing one's anger or taking uh, risks with regards to any other aspects of life, uh, risk behaviors are universal, and uh, they can all be um, managed and uh, treated in in quite similar ways with the evidence-based practices that are available to us. I think it's also true if we can have friends or good social relationships with people of other sexual orientations, too. Then it breaks down the barriers. It helps to, you know, lessen the the bullying. So, um, you know, mm-hmm. we need to, everybody needs to all just get along. <laughs> That's a good statement. And uh, it, it's it's easy to say and not so easy to do. Um, and if, if we all remembered that uh, and, and were mindful of how we interacted with others, um, as you say, if we all just got along, perhaps the world would be a better place. Now, I know one of the topics you're interested in is emerging adulthood as a development stage that is in need of further clinical attention. Can you uh, develop and expand on that topic? Yes, absolutely. So developmental uh, psychology traditionally was interested in child development, how uh, experiences in early childhood um, inform and affect uh, the development of uh, strengths and um, and also psychopathology in uh, later adulthood. Um, 
then developmental psychology was very interested in issues in late life and geropsychology, uh, issues of uh, mental health and resilience in older adults. But somewhere in between there was a, a bit of a lack of attention towards the uh, developmental needs and, and the specific um, challenges that young adults face as they uh, grow into, uh, um, you know, closer to midlife. Uh, and there are changes that occur in the brain uh, that, that were sort of not really recognized until recently and specific needs that, that were not very well addressed. So it became a, an area of study that really uh, blossomed over the last few years and it's, it's thought now that, that uh, or affirmed that those two are very formative years between the ages of, say, 18 and 30. And what are some of the special issues or specific issues that uh, tend to pop up in those, in those years? Mm-hmm. Well, issues of separation and individuation from families, issues of uh, identity consolidation, basically answering the questions of who am I, what is my purpose in life, uh, issues around career choice and um, family choices, issues of sexual identity, for example. Uh, these are all um, areas that kind of get consolidated around that time. And uh, it's also known that uh, even though the brain continues to be plastic over time and that it, it adapts to changes over time, in and around the ages of 18 to 25, the brain kind of settles into itself. The connections that were formed through childhood solidify, the neuronal collection, connections solidify, and so the, the brain becomes more and more, uh, shall I say, hardwired to respond in a certain way uh, and that is a, an, also an age where psychological and psychotherapeutic interventions could have a lot of impact because the, 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 the mind and the brain are still quite flexible So as compared to later on in life where uh, connections are more stable in the brain. Uh, so it's an area that, that has a lot of potential and um, a, uh, an age group that uh, potentially, if, if targeted properly, um, prevent the development of serious mental health problems later on in life. What are some of the interventions to target this specific population? The interventions to target the, this population are essentially modifications on uh, child and adolescent psychology, you know, as, as it is a, an interim between these two developmental stages of uh, full-fledged adulthood and uh, adolescence. Um, group interventions work really well with this population because peer groups uh, have a very strong impact on um, mental health and behaviors at that age. And so uh, college uh, interventions within colleges, for example, around uh, problem drinking, it's known that uh, group-level interventions tend to be sometimes more effective, but at the very least as effective uh, as individual-level interventions. Okay, that's very interesting. I'm going to move on to uh, uh, the next topic. Um, mm -hmm. 
this is uh, working working with underserved and at-risk populations, and what are the evidence-based practices for working with these populations? Mm -hmm. So currently, uh, I work as a project director for uh, a SAMHSA-funded uh, program, SAMHSA being the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, an arm of the National Institutes of Health and National Institutes of Mental Health. And uh, this program essentially offers substance abuse and mental health treatment to homeless individuals living with AIDS within the shelter systems of uh, New York City. So by underserved populations, I, I mean in this case, um, people who are homeless and tend to uh, not be able to benefit from many of the traditional social services that are available in the city. And what we do is offer mental health and substance abuse treatment on site within the shelters. Uh, rather than function as an outpatient or inpatient unit, uh, we offer the choice to the to the people living in these shelters to engage with us, if they like, on the ground floor of that shelter and to partake in some of the groups that we offer, which um, are heavily informed by evidence-based practices, including integrative harm reduction psychotherapy and uh, motivational interviewing and cognitive behavior therapy. And uh, well, just really briefly, what is integrative harm reduction psychotherapy? Integrative harm reduction psychotherapy, as developed by Andrew Tatarski, and uh, as as you're interviewing me, I'm also representing the Center for Optimal Living, uh, which Andrew Tatarski and colleagues uh, have launched, um, is a school of psychotherapy or, or, or uh, aggregation of techniques that seek to integrate um, a host of evidence-based practices uh, that have been shown to function very well at helping people um, reduce the harm of risky behaviors and effect self-guided positive uh, behavior changes. Now, um, the evidence-based practices that inform uh, integrative harm reduction psychotherapy include cognitive behavior therapy, motivational interviewing, psychodynamic therapy, harm reduction, and these are uh, combined in a client-centered way because not every technique is going to work with uh, every client. So one, uh, if one is trained properly in multiple techniques, uh, a treatment program could be tailored to the um, to the needs of individual clients. Well, I think that's a very wise way to approach doing therapy because it seems to me some people respond better to certain approaches than others. Myself, personally, I'm a very analytical, rational person. I like cognitive behavioral therapy a lot. It, it really works for me. It's really worked for me in the past. I have other friends of mine that really like things like uh, acceptance and commit ther commitment therapy or dialectical mm -hmm. behavioral because they like the meditation aspects and those mindfulness yeah. aspects. And so, yeah, it's really different strokes for different folks. Absolutely, and mindfulness is a key component of integrative harm reduction psychotherapy. Uh, not only has mindfulness been fully 
uh, embraced by cognitive behavior therapy and its uh, satellite um, uh, philosophies, uh, but it, it's it's a real um, central focus of the clinical work uh, that uh, people who practice integrative harm reduction psychotherapy do, My, teaching mindfulness or helping uh, clients or patients uh, become more attuned to their inner states and also for the clinicians working with them to be attuned to their, uh, to their emotions when working with, uh, with clients. Okay, let's move on and talk about the treatment of co-occurring disorders. Um, for those of us in the audience, we're talking about substance abuse co-occurring with some mental health disorder. And mm-hmm. um, should so, is it better for clinicians to say treat the substance abuse first and wait and do the mental health later, or do the mental health first, or do you do them together? What's the best mm-hmm. way to approach this? Well, I'm glad you asked that question because uh, the for a very long time um, in the Western world, it was thought that uh, one should be uh, treating one of the types of disorders before the other. And when we say co-occurring, um, like you say, it's a substance abuse condition that co-occurs with, say, a mood disorder like depression or bipolar or anxiety con- uh, disorders or even... Um, personality or uh, psychotic um, disorders. And for a while there, it seemed as though uh, different different treatment centers were specializing in either one or the other, but not both. And so if someone presented to a uh, uh, rehabilitation facility or an outpatient uh, drug treatment program and they had um, a uh, significant mood disorder, then typically what what might have been uh, what might have been suggested or recommended was that they treat the mood disorder before the substance abuse and uh, and vice versa if they were to present to a mental health clinic with a severe substance abuse uh, issue then um, it was recommended that the substance abuse issue be treated first mm-hmm. and so um, a lot of a lot of uh, these people ended up falling through the cracks because um, their needs were not being accurately assessed and met simultaneously. Somebody who suffers from depression has a much harder time um, uh, reducing their substance use, and somebody who uh, uses substances um, in an excessive way has a much harder time regulating their emotions. And so uh, the concept of uh, integrated dual disorder treatment or the treatment of co-occurring disorders is that one should treat both of these uh, issues at the same time because substance abuse um, and alcohol abuse are seen as mental health issues. They're not separate from mental health. And that is, a, unfortunately, a division that occurred historically in, in this nation uh, between uh, substance abuse and mental health uh, treatment facilities. So treatment of co-occurring disorders tends to treat both of them simultaneously, and when you treat, you treat when you target them simultaneously, there's a synergistic effect in that, uh, you know, helping somebody reduce their substance use, if that's uh, an issue, uh, autom- almost automatically helps with the mood disorder symptoms at the same time and vice versa. So should we have one clinician that's treating 
both aspects at the same time, the mental health and substance abuse as, aspect, or two different clinicians? There's various different ways to approach this, and there are uh, clinics and treatment settings that function uh, with a very varied multidisciplinary staff that includes nurses and psychiatrists for medication management, uh, psychologists and substance abuse counselors and art therapists um, and recreational uh, therapies. And any and all of these points of entry into uh, symptom improvement, uh, when properly coordinated, will uh, have a positive impact. Um, now, some treatment facilities prefer that it be one clinician that treats both, and uh, other treatment facilities prefer that uh, a number of clinicians target different behaviors. It's, it's all a question of um, treatment philosophies, and the evidence is still a little bit mixed as to which works best. Well, I know that personally in the past I have encountered this difficulty with the system that you were talking about before, about when people want to separate these out. Um, you know, I was seeking some help for depression. I mean, uh, you know, I much earlier on had problems with alcohol, but they've been resolved, and they've been resolved with a non-abstinence approach. And, you know, I'm going to a clinic, and I'm saying, I need help with depression. And they say, did you ever go through any addiction treatment? And I said, yes. And they said, have you been abstinent for six months? And I said, no, but I don't have any alcohol-related problems. They're, they've been mm -hmm. resolved. And they said, no, you can't have any psychological treatment unless you're absent for six months. Go check into our substance abuse program. That's a, a perfect example of the irony uh, that, 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 that we were talking about just earlier, that, uh, that some treatment programs uh, will um, exclude or, or refuse treatment when it's most clinically sound to provide treatment. And uh, that's an unfortunate state of affairs. Well, hopefully it's changing. Well, I do see it changing a lot. I'm going to go one last question here. Is Do the skills uh, acquired with harm reduction psychotherapy, uh, can these transfer, transfer to uh, work life, family life, social life, and communities? Yes. Absolutely. As we, we talked about earlier, uh, risk behaviors are risk behaviors are risk behaviors. And whether one is speaking of substance use or overeating or uh, other uh, healthy or less healthy behaviors, they're all um, habits that could can be changed should a person be motivated to change them. The tools that are provided by integrative harm reduction psychotherapy can be used at once for behavior change around substance use, uh, if the person chooses to do so. And the acquisition of those skills could, can be uh, useful for virtually any kind of behaviors that a person is looking to change. Okay, I want to thank you very much for being our guest this evening, Michael Benevke. Thank you so much for uh, the opportunity. And everyone, tune in next week. We'll be doing a show on Wednesday evening at 10.30 p.m. Eastern Time. And uh, we will be talking to Denise Cullen, who uh, works, who is the founder of a group called GRASP, which is a support group for people who've lost a loved one due to substance abuse 
problems. So looking forward to talking to you all uh, next week on Wednesday. And good night. Thank you. Good night.